We'll hear argument first this morning in case 09-1454, Camretta v. Green, and 09-1478, Alford v. Green. General Kroger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Pearson v. Callahan, this Court gave the lower Federal Courts discretionary power to decide substantive questions of constitutional law in qualified immunity cases in order to further the development of constitutional precedent. If it is valuable for the lower courts to decide these cases, then it is essential that this Court be able to review those decisions in order to ensure that they are accurate. For this reason, the case is justiciable and should be reviewed on the merits. Turning to the merits of this case, the Court of Appeals held that so fast. Of course, there are two issues here, and I hope we do get to this. Can you tell me Camretta's current occupation? Does the record establish that? Does the record tell us what Camretta is doing now? The record does not, Your Honor, because the mootness issue was raised relatively late in the proceedings. But I'm aware of what his current occupation is. Which is? He is a child protective services worker with the Oregon Department of Human Services. What I was about to ask is this. I can agree with you that where there is a determination on the merits, it should be reviewable, but could still disagree that it's reviewable where the requirements for Article III are not met. That is, where there is really no justiciable controversy between the parties. What is the interest of the parties who were victorious here? Your Honor, the interest of Mr. Camretta is the ongoing harm he has in his job. Under the Ninth Circuit's decision, he is forced to either forego a regular and recurring duty of his job, which is to interview potential child victims in school, or to face liability for doing so. Why would he face liability? Because he didn't have the opportunity to challenge that decision, the Fourth Amendment decision. Therefore, it would have no preclusive effect on him. A party who doesn't have that, if there are alternative holdings and you lose on one, win on the other, you're not precluded by the loss because you didn't have an opportunity to raise it on appeal. So why would Camretta be precluded? Why would he face punitive damages, as you just suggested? Your Honor, the Ninth Circuit opinion does apply to Mr. Camretta, and the Court specifically advised Mr. Camretta and others in his position that they are on notice that in-school interviews of students that require a seizure require a warrant. And thus, the Ninth Circuit decision does have precedential effect and impacts Mr. Camretta. But it takes two to tango, and a case or controversy requires somebody on the other side who cares a fig about the outcome. And here, S.G., who was the young woman affected in the case, has moved to another State and making it virtually certain that she'll never confront this situation again. She doesn't care what the result of this thing is. Besides which, I think she's, what, 17 years old or so now? It's impossible that she will be confronted with the same situation. Your Honor, I disagree that S.G. has no ongoing concrete stake in the outcome of this case. In footnote 20 of the Respondent's brief on page 33, the Respondent notes that they have filed a motion in the United States District Court to bring their Fourth Amendment claim against Deschutes County, a potential party that has no qualified immunity as a defense. And obviously, the legal viability of that claim against Deschutes County will depend very much on the ruling on the merits of this Court. This is a Monell claim, and it's — and the District Court has held its ruling, I take it, in abeyance, pending a ruling for reinstatement of that claim, pending our decision here? That is correct, Your Honor. The District Court ruled that it was premature until these proceedings were concluded. Well, why isn't the answer, then, that that's the right case to take up? Because in this case, we have 
uh, a plaintiff who is not going to be confronted with this situation again and who has put herself out of the running for damages because she didn't uh, she didn't challenge the qualified immunity ruling. So she has no stake in, in any monetary relief from this claim. She has no continuing um, the, the what has happened to her happened to her at age nine will never happen again now that she's past eighteen. So she hasn't. If she came to court today with her case as an eighteen-year-old, she would have no no case or controversy. It just seems like the whole case has evaporated. She has no claim. She did have a claim for for money damages, but she relinquished that. So what? What genuine controversy is before us? Your Honor, I, I, the controversy remains the Fourth Amendment claim, which is the, the respondent is seeking to pursue in the United States District Court. And that gives the respondent here a direct financial stake in the viability of their Fourth Amendment argument. And I'm sorry. Isn't that, isn't that the, the county's claim? How Camaretta does his job, doesn't, that claim doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the entity who's telling him how to do his job. And so why don't we go back to Justice Ginsburg's question, question of why isn't the Monell situation the proper case? Because there it's the party interested in how its officers will do their job at its directive. It has the case and controversy at issue, not SG. Right now, she's never going to be investigated again. She's in another state. I understand that she doesn't even ever want to return to Oregon for probably fairly good reasons, at least from her perspective. So, again, why isn't this the interest of the county, not this, not the interest of the officer? Your Honor, in Arizonans versus Arizona, the, the court recognized that the employee in that case had a, a, an interest in how she was able to conduct her job. The court decided that the case was, was moot because she had resigned from her position with the state. But there was no objection to, to her standing because she was a public employee that wanted to perform her job in a particular way uh, because she was required to under state law. And here uh, — She was a plaintiff. In, the, in Arizona, as we were talking about, whether a plaintiff still had a viable claim, right? That is correct, Your Honor. And, General yeah. Kroger, I don't think that the question here is really a standing question. It's really whether there's a controversy between this particular plaintiff and this particular defendant, such that a judgment in this case would actually affect the legal relationship between the two, between the particular plaintiff and the particular defendant. So how would it do that? How would a legal judgment in this case affect the legal relationship between this plaintiff and this defendant? Your Honor, the, the, uh, the uh, Mr. Camaretta remains a party below, uh, and it's possible that the Court's rulings on the Fourth Amendment merits may impact the Fourteenth Amendment claims that are being made against Mr. Camaretta that are alive and in controversy below. Moreover, this case, even if one strips out the ongoing motion that's been made in the District Court, resembles in, in all material respects Erie versus Paps AM, where the Court found that there uh, was standing to bring the case and, and it was not moot. And so there does seem to be an active case or controversy that is equivalent to that that was uh, present in Erie versus Paps AM. How, how does it affect the 14th Amendment? There, there, there's a 14th Amendment claim pending below? Uh, yes, Your Honor. And, and, and what's the substance of that? It is a claim of uh, Mrs. Green to interference with familial rights as a result of certain actions by Mr. Camerata and other defendants. But that didn't have to do with the school search, or the, the school seizure. That is correct, Your Honor. So, and this case presents the question of, uh, about, uh, was this unreasonable? Uh, that what's left in the case has to do with the mother's claim, and it has to do with putting the girls in custody, right? That is correct, Your Honor. Yeah. So Counsel, if we were to hold this case would, was moved, what would 
what do you think the appropriate disposition of the case would be? Your Honor, I believe if the Court determined that this case was moot, the, the appropriate remedy would be pursuant to Munsingware to vacate the Ninth Circuit decision. Well, you don't really want that because the Ninth Circuit granted qualified immunity. What would be, what would we be vacating? They haven't rendered a judgment on the search warrant issue. Um, that is correct, Your Honor. Uh, what, what I think the appropriate remedy for the Court would be would be to, to effectively vacate, the, vacate opinion. the opinion or decision on the Fourth Amendment claim. Wait, you happy, it? won't it? Won't that make you happy? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The, 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 I think the only difficulty with that as a, as a outcome of the case is it undercuts the logic of the Pearson decision. Uh, it doesn't just do that. Is Mr. Camaretta in any more comfortable position when he knows that the Ninth, what the Ninth Circuit thinks on this issue, and he just has to wait till there's another case when they can impose the view that they've already spelled out? I know as a technical matter, it's not binding. But if you're Camaretta, do you say, well, the Supreme Court vacated that decision, so I can go ahead and do this again um, uh, and not have to worry uh, about personal liability? You're correct, Your Honor. It would place Mr. Camrata and other child protective services workers in the Ninth Circuit. What? There are different panels on the Ninth Circuit, aren't there? Yes, Your Honor. And, and they don't all hold the same thing, uh, fortunately, do they? They do, they, do, they do not, Your Honor. They're supposed to file circuit, follow circuit precedent, aren't they? That is correct, Your Honor. But an Mr. opinion that is vacated is not circuit precedent, is it? It is not, Your Honor. Mr. Camrata would be protected. He would presumably still be entitled to qualified immunity because uh, a vacated alternative holding certainly could not clearly establish something, I would assume. But municipalities, if they continue to participate in, in uh, questioning of this nature, would not be protected. Isn't that right? That is correct, Your Honor. What, have the muni- what, what has Oregon done in response to this Ninth Circuit decision? Before it said that the caseworkers could have this kind of interview with a, a child where there was a suspicion of abuse, was there any change in practice in Oregon in response to the Ninth Circuit's decision? Your Honor, that is not in the record, but I would happy, be happy to respond. The, the uh, state of Oregon provided legal advice uh, advising child protective services workers to uh, attempt to avoid anything that would be a seizure in a school. And in cases where that would pose no risk of danger to the children to seek uh, consent of, of a parent before conducting an interview. Nevertheless, that legal advice puts a significant burden on the child protective services workers to, to do their utmost to protect Oregon's children. Harris, do you think that um, the same approach you're following here would apply if the investigation focused on the student rather than a third party? Would, in those cases, a warrant have to be obtained? Your Honor, I think in, in those cases, because parental consent is a viable alternative where the allegation is a child is being abused by another child. No, no, not another child. It could be anything. We think the child is, uh, you know, selling drugs, obviously not a seven-year-old, but uh, someone else in the school is involved in illegal activity, him or herself. Your Honor, I believe the, the child abuse context is somewhat unique in that there are very few ways to uh, investigate properly child abuse without speaking to the only witness that's typically available in the case, and that is so. So you think it would be a different rule if we're talking about some other criminal activity? The father's uh, selling drugs, and you think the child might have some evidence or at least be willing to talk about that. Do you need any, anything other than reasonableness in that case? Your Honor, it would be the same reasonableness standard that would apply, but I think the courts might reach different conclusions about what would be reasonable in those circumstances. Well, on, on, uh, you're, we're getting to the merits. Do you agree that search, strike that, that seizure under the Fourth Amendment is the relevant category here? Absolutely, Your Honor. Uh, you agree that the child was, was, was seized? Yes, Your Honor. We concede that the child was seized. What, what happens if the uh, teacher tells the um, student who's misbehaving on the play, playground, go back into the classroom. You can't, you sit there by yourself, you can't be part of recess. Is that a seizure? No, Your Honor, I, I disagree that that would be a seizure. What, what, what made this a seizure? 
fact that it wasn't a teacher? Your Honor, the reason we conceded the issue of seizure is we are here on, on, on summary judgment. And we took the facts as alleged, which involved uh, transporting the student inside the school. Well, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking for your view of the proper category to apply in these cases. And if it is a seizure, then, then, then it's just a question of reasonableness. And we look at all the circumstances. That is correct, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. A number of the questions this morning have focused on the question whether a live case or controversy remains because respondent has chosen not to challenge the Ninth Circuit's qualified immunity ruling, and so purportedly has no continuing stake in the resolution of this controversy. We think that that's not correct for the reasons General Kroger has given, but it's also not an irreducible minimum of this Court's jurisdiction to correct the mistake that the Ninth Circuit made in this case. What about the she, did she, go, let's go back one step. Does she have any viable claim uh, now? This is not a capable of repetition, evasive of review. Well, uh, two responses, Justice Ginsburg. First, as General Kroger mentioned, she has a continuing interest in how this Court resolves this controversy because of her attempt to bring the same Fourth Amendment claim against Deschutes County. But setting that aside, this Court hasn't universally required that as a prerequisite to exercising its jurisdiction. I think there are two examples that help to illustrate the point. The first is the City of Erie versus Paps AM case, in which this Court decided to review a state court injunction entered in favor of a plaintiff who no longer had an, uh, what we would think of as an Article Three stake in the case by the time the case reached this court. The plaintiff in that case had left the nude dancing business and had affirmatively stated that he had no intention to return. The court nevertheless reached the merits of the state court decision that was on review because to do otherwise would be to saddle the city of Erie with an ongoing injury. There was a dissent in that case, wasn't there? There was indeed a dissent in that case. But I would note that there was also a, uh, a dissent from the denial of cert in Bunting versus Mellon in which very much the same situation was presented. The cadets who brought the challenge to the BMI supper prayer that was at issue in that case had graduated from BMI by the time this case reached this court. And I think as you quite properly noted in your dissent from the denial of review in that case, for this court to essentially insulate those types of constitutional rulings from review would be to undermine the very purposes for Ms. Cruiser, how does this, this situation, the qualified immunity situation, differ from a wide variety of other situations in which we might not be able to get to the underlying constitutional ruling? For example, in any case where there's uh, a constitutional ruling, but also a harmless error ruling, or in a Sixth Amendment case where there are standards about ineffective assistance of counsel, but then uh, a, a finding that there is no prejudice. In all of those kinds of cases, the underlying substantive ruling might be insulated from our review. How would you say that the qualified immunity situation is different, and how would you be able to cabin this rule? The reason we think the qualified immunity situation is different and presents a set of exceptional circumstances that warrant an exception to the usual prudential rule is because the qualified immunity situation is one in which this Court has encouraged courts to undertake these kinds of constitutional rulings for the purpose of changing the legal landscape going forward, for the very purpose of establishing the law so that that qualified immunity doesn't remain perpetually available to officials, even though they are engaging in conduct. But presumably in every case, excuse me, presumably in every case in which a court does these uh, uh, paired rulings, if you will, it doesn't just say that, that the error was harmless, but says that there was an error, there's a purpose to clarify the law. How is this different, once again? I think that in this situation, what we have is not just a preview of how the Court of Appeals would decide the case subsequently in a case in which it was actually necessary to reach a certain judgment. What we have is a decision that changes the legal landscape going forward. It establishes the law such that qualified immunity will not be available in the next case. And it means that people like Petitioner Camretta and other Child Protective Services workers who are doing their best 
to protect children from abuse are now on notice that if they attempt to detain temporarily a child in school for the purposes of trying to confirm or dispel a reasonable suspicion of child abuse without a warrant supported by probable cause, that they will invite lawsuits that would put them on the line for personal monetary damage. That wouldn't be the case if the opinion were vacated. That's under, true. Un, under Munsingware. That's true, Justice Scalia, and I think that if that's the disposition that this Court thinks is appropriate, we would certainly be happier with that than a rule that says that an incorrect constitutional be, ruling. It would be a partial vacator, right? The Court's done that before, hasn't it, where we vacate part of a decision under Munsingware? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. But I would note that a vacator rule would come with certain costs that I think this Court should keep in mind as it decides what the appropriate disposition of this case is. The reason that Respondent has so vigorously objected to that disposition is because it is inconsistent in some ways with the very reason for permitting courts of appeals to undertake this kind of constitutional determination in the first place. It undermines the, the development of the constitutional law if this Court simply wipes the, the, the slate clean but doesn't exercise its own authority to clarify the law by correcting what the Ninth Circuit has done. And I think as the Chief Justice has quite correctly pointed out, it also does nothing to dispel the cloud of uncertainty that hangs over individuals within the territorial jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit. Well, I'm not so sure he was correct. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> if it's vacated, it indicates that there's no established law on that question. And it seems to me Camaretta would be free to do what uh, he considered appropriate uh, under the circumstances. And if somebody tries to impose uh, personal liability on him, it seems he has even stronger case than he might have before. I think that's correct, Mr. Chief Justice, and I think for that reason we would not object to that disposition in this case. We would just observe that that disposition is one that does not sit particularly comfortably with the reasoning of Pearson and the line of cases that comes before it that recognizes that the reason why we encourage courts of appeals to undertake these determinations in the first place is to promote the development of constitutional law and to ensure that the law doesn't remain not clearly established in perpetuity. It seems to me it would affect Camaretta's behavior and that of other uh, child protective officers. Uh, the lawyer would explain now, legally this is not binding. It's, it's never happened. But uh, three judges of the Court of Appeals in a reasoned decision have explained of why this is contrary to the Constitution. And it would seem to me that any uh, conscientious law enforcement officer would, would take that seriously into account. I think that's absolutely right, Justice Kennedy. Why? What's the test? Isn't the test clearly established law? That's Would right. this be clearly established law under any any conceivable interpretation of that? I think it's it's true that if this Court were to vacate the Ninth Circuit's constitutional ruling, Mr. Camretta and others who are similarly situated wouldn't face the very significant, concrete perspective effect of this decision, which is to strip them of qualified immunity in future cases, they would be able to argue, as you're suggesting, that the law is not clearly established. Could you, we, in the, in the, you have very limited time. Could you, could you go to the merits of the Fourth Amendment question and give us the government's position on that? Certainly, Justice Ginsburg. The, the Ninth Circuit in this case held that the temporary detention of a child in school to confirm or dispel suspicions that that child is being abused is unconstitutional unless the questioning officials have a warrant, probable cause, or parental consent. We think each of those requirements is unjustified as a matter of Fourth Amendment law and imposes a serious burden on the conduct of the, of the government at the initial stages of a child abuse investigation. As Counselor, would, I'm interrupting you only for a quick reason. What's the test? Is it a question of whether the seizure is reasonable or not? That's correct, Justice Sotomayor. The question right, so, is reasonableness. So that would be your proposed test. If we were to say you don't need any of those three things right now, where would that leave us or leave the courts below on determining whether what happened here was reasonable or not? Meaning, what if a child is called in and says, I don't want to talk to you without my mom, and they continue to speak to the child? Is that reasonable? I think that the answer is it, that would go to the, to the question of the manner in which the, the interview is conducted as opposed so to whether it's reasonable help, at its inception. How do we develop the law? Or how do we help develop the law in this case if we answer your question but leave unanswered with no parameters 
any idea, because we have no set of facts, no one's going to review that question, of what is reasonable in this context? Well, the, the question that the Ninth Circuit answered in this case was a question that concerns the justification for the interview at its inception. The Ninth Circuit said a warrant, probable cause, or parental consent is required from the very outset. That would be true whether an interview lasted two hours or ten minutes, whether the child was responsive, whether the child wasn't. That, you see, that's the problem with taking up a case with no case in controversy, because what do we do? We don't remand for them to reach the second question, which is really the one that law enforcement needs some help on. Well, I, I would um, disagree with that proposition. I think law enforcement very much needs help on the question that the Ninth Circuit actually decided because the warrant or probable cause requirement is one that has a very significant effect on the way that they carry out their very important business in this area. The Court has no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Kubitschek. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court, uh, there is no case of controversy between SG and the petitioners. That ended Well, then why are, you, why are you here? You're not challenging the qualified immunity ruling. Precisely. Yet you have, yet you have why, why didn't you just go away? <laughs> you're, you're, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, we are not here voluntarily. Uh, no, I know that, but why? <laughs> I do know that. But on the other hand, you had no, you could have filed a paper saying we have no continuing interest in the case, but you haven't done that. You've fought the legal issues on merits in, in, in an area where it's been suggested you don't have a stake. Um, we, uh, SG does not have a legally cognizable stake, Your Honor. She uh, won a moral victory when she obtained a ruling in her favor on the Fourth Amendment claim in the Ninth Circuit. But as this Court said in Hewitt against Helms, a moral victory is no victory at all. But So you have no objection if we entered a Munsingware order vacating the decision of the Ninth Circuit on the merits of the dispute? Well, Your Honor, the, the, we would submit that uh, the Munsingware uh, test would not apply in this case uh, because uh, Munsingware, which uh, permitted vacating a, a decision when it became moot, uh, talked about decisions which become moot through happenstance. And uh, well, the reason again, for I that is because of preclusion. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, uh, again, I get to the question, why do you care? Why do you care whether we vacate the, the order or not? Your position is your client has no continuing interest in the case. The, our client has no legally binding, legally cognizable interest in the case. She has an interest in protecting her moral victory, as do — and in the issue, as do the many amici who filed briefs. Uh, She's asserting the interest of others, children who will be in the situation that she was once is in but no longer. But we have said that the plaintiff herself must have a live controversy. And, it, and it, there was no class action here? That, that is correct, Justice Ginsburg. She does not have an interest, that, and the well, case is moot. You want to have the Fourth Amendment decision preserved and have it govern uh, an enormous chunk of the country so that all the states in the Ninth Circuit have to comply with it, and anybody, any individual officer who doesn't comply with it would do so on pain of personal liability. But you don't want that uh, groundbreaking decision to be subject to review by this court on the merits. Is that a, a summary of what you want, and does that make any sense? Um, Your Honor, the, uh, the the case, if the case is truly as important to um, other employees of the states in, in, within the confines of the Ninth Circuit, it will arise again. And this Court will have the opportunity to decide the issue again between uh, parties who have a live stake in the issue, or it will arise in another circuit and it will present a live controversy between parties who have a stake. So you want us to Munsingware. You, you, you don't want us just to leave it sitting because there's no controversy. 
You, uh, you want us to uh, erase that holding below, right? No, Your Honor, we would not ask that the holding below be erased. Well, then, that, then the answer you just gave doesn't make any sense. You say, it can, you know, it can arise again. That would be the answer of someone who wants us to eliminate the holding here. Uh, don't worry. It'll come up again in a context where, on appeal, somebody will have an interest in, in arguing to, to sustain it. But that interest doesn't exist here. Um, but that's the argument you're making. But that's the argument of someone who I, wants I, I'm us to so, somewhere. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I misspoke. It will come up if it is as — if the practice is as widespread as the petitioners claim, it will come up again in other circuits, and this Court will have the opportunity well, to Well, but Justice Alito's question was addressed to the Ninth Circuit. In, in, in the Ninth Circuit, uh, it's not going to come up again if we assume that our — uh, public employees are going to be law-abiding. They're bound by this in the Ninth Circuit. Well, Your Honor, I guess and that you, and you want them to be bound. We, and yet you say there's a, that the that the case is moved. I, I just don't understand. Well, Your Honor, that leads to the question of what exactly are they bound by, and uh, our reading of the Court of Appeals decision is not nearly as broad as uh, the petitioner's reading. Uh, the, the Court of Appeals said specifically um, our caseworkers and police officers always allowed to question children in a protractive custodial setting. Where, where are you reading the holding well, of the uh, Court of Appeals? Because I was under the impression that they did say there's only three ways. One is you get a warrant. Another is you get parental consent. And the third is exigent circumstances. I thought that was okay, the, the ruling of law by the Ninth Circuit. The, that was that was the ruling as it applied to SG herself, Justice Ginsburg. This was not a class action lawsuit, and the court was deciding what uh, happened to one nine-year-old child on February 24, 2003. Well, let's see where they. I thought that yes, it's. The case is about a single plaintiff. It's not a class action. But they're making a rule of law. What does the Fourth Amendment require? Okay. On page 1022, Your Honor, it says, We consider the relatively straightforward question whether an in-school seizure and interrogation of a suspected child abuse victim is always permissible under the Fourth Amendment without probable cause and a warrant or the equivalent of a warrant. And the court, and the court said, no, not always, and not in this case. And if this court does reach the merits of of this case, we would ask this court to uh, uphold a rule that stating that a protracted custodial interview of a child by police and child welfare investigators is presumptively unconstitutional unless they have a warrant or court order or parental consent or exigent circumstances. What is there in the Ninth Circuit's opinion, which, re- which generally requires a warrant, to suggest that the length of the interrogation was relevant to their decision? The, the police and the Child Protective Services need to f- dis- decide whether they need a warrant before they begin the questioning, no matter how long it's going to last. Um, Where does it say that the length is relevant to the, de- to the issue that they decided? Well, Your Honor, the, the length of the questioning has been historically important to this Court's jurisprudence. It distinguishes, for example, between a Terry stop and a seizure. Uh, and this Court said, for example, in the United States Against Place, that a 90-minute detention is, uh, falls out of the realm of a Terry stop and into the realm of a seizure for which uh, full Fourth Amendment protections are required of a uh, criminal suspect. And this Court has also said in Soldal against Cook County that it would be anomalous if people who are not suspected of any wrongdoing at all had um, fewer Fourth Amendment protections than. I don't understand. It it seems like a very strange rule to me. You, You mean it's okay for a child protection worker to just ask the child passing in the hall, uh, you know, has, has your, or not passing in the hall, uh, come into this room. I have a, a 
question for you. Has your father been abusing you? And if the child says, yes, thank you, and the child goes, then that's okay. Because it was a short interview. And the — I didn't mean to — that the length of the interview is the only factor, Your Honor. Uh, One of the other factors is that the — uh, that the seizure is determined by the by the facts that the uh, police and child welfare worker remove the child or remove any individual from the place where she is. Right, bring her into a room. Another I place, that. But, and but that once they take her in a room, it depends on how long the interview is. Is that right? Um, that that goes to the question of whether or not there was a seizure. Yeah, and and whatever. in this case, it was stipulated that there was a seizure. We're talking about rules for the future. We're not talking about this case. And you're asking us to adopt a rule for the future that says if it's very brief, it's okay. But if it's longer, it isn't okay. Right? That's what you want us to adopt. Um, that that if, it, if it were very brief and the uh, child was not removed from her class. No, 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 no. Removed. There has been a seizure, but it's been a very brief seizure, just as the, a Terry stop is a very brief seizure. Our, our, our position would be that because um, the of the importance of consent here went to a seizure, that uh, the uh, — that there would need to be a court order to remove a child from her classroom and to take her to another room. On the issue of or, — Or parental consent. So you're changing your position. You need a court order no matter how brief. Is that it? I think that has been our position, and I'm sorry if I may, didn't make oh, okay. it clear. Well, On the issue of consent, uh, do you read the Ninth Circuit's opinion as having an age limit Suppose that the child is, let's say, 16 years old. Is the child at 16 incapable of consenting to questioning? Well, the way that um, we read the Court of Appeals decision and the rule that we would um, ask this Court to adopt, that is uh, a seizure and for a custodial interrogation is presumptively unreasonable without parental consent or court order, leads open the possibility that there are, in fact, some children who are of suitable age and discretion to knowingly make a decision whether or not to talk to an armed police officer and a caseworker without their parents having to make it for them. But Counselor, are you — I just want to make sure I understand your position. Answering Justice Scalia's question — child walks into the room, taken out of the classroom, walks into the room. The officer says, we've heard that your mommy and daddy are doing some things to your private parts. Is that true? And the child says, nine-year-old child says, I wish somebody had asked me before. I'm so afraid of my daddy. He does these horrible things to me. Are you seriously suggesting that if the police stay there for an hour, debriefing that child as to the circumstances of that situation, that that's a seizure? You are, and that it, it seems to a be a seizure, that yes. But that would have exigent circumstances, and that would get it out of the warrant requirement. Well, but what does that have to do or change the police bringing a child into a room and just asking the question, when does — that's what you seem to have said to Justice Scalia, which is that the mere removal from the classroom is the, the defining feature of seizure. So it can't be that. Well, they don't know if there's exigent that, circumstances till they ask the question. That you got a stipulation that there was a seizure. What? So you didn't. Yes, there was a there seizure. There was never any argument. That wasn't not at issue in this case. That, it's that's, given that's that there correct. was a seizure, the question is: is is it reasonable? That, you in the many of the questions have gone to police, but this was initially a social worker's investigation, and you said when stating what the Ninth Circuit's rule was uh, that police, in combination with caseworker. Suppose we took Alfred out of the picture, and he didn't even utter a word in the interview. 
Suppose we take the sheriff's deputy sheriff out. The only one who comes to the school and asks to talk to this child is the caseworker from the Department of Health. Well, um, it, it would depend on, I think, the larger picture, be whether or not there was police entanglement, as this Court ruled in Ferguson against the city of Charleston. In this particular well, what case, does that I mean, if, you, if the information elicited from the child is that she has been abused by her father, then there is a likelihood that, that there will be police interest in that. Well, and, and this, this Court recognized also that possibility in Ferguson against the city of Charleston that um, the, the nurses at the hospital would call uh, Child Protective Services. But the, the, you have to look at it from the beginning. And in this case, the case began when, uh, on February 10th, when the police got involved. The police did not report the matter to the, the Child Protective admin investigator until 10 days later, and then they went out together. Uh, subsequently, the Child Protective Investigator testified before a grand jury uh, as part of the ongoing law enforcement investigation. And, in fact, uh, when he was questioned at his deposition, uh, Petitioner Alford said that his reason for being at the school was for law enforcement purposes. But what is your answer to Justice Ginsburg's question? Suppose it was just Mr. Camretta, or suppose it was the school nurse. Would the answer be the same? No, it would not be the same if it was the school nurse or Mr. Camretta. And the, the reason uh, is that uh, the school nurse is part of the school administration, and the school has uh, an obligation and the authority under TLO Act and Earls to uh, make rules and carry out procedures that will uh, protect the children of the school and promote learning. And if the child well, if it was just Mr. Camretta and, and, and he taped the uh, conversation and then later turned it over the to the police if he discovered evidence of child abuse, there would be no problem. If, right? if, if Mr. Camretta came in uh, from the outside, he would uh, not fall within the TLO rule uh, because in TLO, this, this Court said specifically that, this, that their ruling does not apply to individuals such as police officers who come from the outside uh, in, in order to uh, deal with situations that are not related to the school. And nobody is saying that S.G. was abused while she was at the school. Same so, circumstance, was there a seizure? No, 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 professor, no, uh, uh, uh policeman? If, if school uh, nurse. The school nurse. Uh, a seizure? Probably not a seizure. And so it's not a seizure if exactly the same thing happens, but there's no outside person there, but it is a seizure if there's an outside person. If the outside person comes in, into the school. That's, that's the rule that's as to the, whether there's a seizure. Uh, that's one of the factors to look at. No, 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 whether there's a seizure. Yes. Okay, what makes it a seizure? Uh, Go inside and speak to the principal. I saw you push the child at recess. We want to find out who was pushing you. Go inside and talk to the principal. Seizure? Your Honor, I believe that um, it, it would be considered a seizure, although that's well, not our everybody's case. Everybody's going to stay for five, five minutes after class. Too much talking today. Seizure? That, um, that, Your Honor, it might be a seizure. Again, it's Well, that's what I need alone. to know, because I don't see if there's no seizure, how it could have been uh, an, uh, an unreasonable thing to do, if there isn't even a seizure. Uh, if, if the caseworker comes to the school uh, under circumstances where um, a child would feel free to leave or you're not free to leave control. class well your honor that's that, that children this is correct children have lesser expectations of privacy but when they are forcibly taken out of class and moved to another location go to the principal's uh, office that too much talking that that would be your honor if that is a seizure it would fall within tlo Precisely within TLO. Whereas, if you send her to the school nurse, it's not a seizure. But if the school doesn't have a nurse 
and it brings in a nurse from the outside and says, you know, we think you have some contagious disease. We'd like you to uh, speak to this. And, and it becomes a seizure. Well, Your Honor, the TLO um, framework would certainly apply in that situation where you have a child who has a potentially contagious disease, then the, the analysis would follow TLO. It's contagious. It's just a disease that's going to kill this child and nobody else. Okay. <laughs> Your, Your Honor, that certainly would also fall within the TLO okay. special needs. Okay. So why doesn't it likewise, it's not a nurse, but it's a social worker who's brought in to interrogate the child about something else that is going to very much harm that child. Why is that any different? Well, Your Honor, because um, child welfare investigations are also harmful to children. And when when a child is asked, um, interrogated, about whether or not her father touches her inappropriately, that's not a neutral action. Whether or not she has been abused, it's that nothing to do with trauma. whether there's a seizure. Nothing whatever to do with whether there's a seizure. If, if there — The questions you ask after the seizure don't make it a seizure or make it not a seizure, do they? Um, They, they affect the constitutionality of the uh, interaction between the child and the Doesn't uh, that go to the question of the reasonableness of the scope of the seizure? Don't we have Litster and, and other jurisprudence that basically addresses this question and says, is, is this type of seizure or stop detention reasonable? And it's hard to swallow that if a police officer asks a child, are you being abused, and the child says, yes, I need help, it is nearly impossible to think that that seizure is unreasonable. Uh, that uh, you're, 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 it may well be that two hours for a protesting child would be, but isn't that all subject to a question of reasonableness as to the scope of the seizure? Well, Your Honor, because — He's helping the, you, I think. I'm sorry? She's helping you, I think. <laughs> no. well, but, but that goes to the reasonableness of the seizure. I was asking you about whether there has been a seizure. Step one, has there been a seizure? Uh, and you're saying that in a lot of these situations, there simply hasn't been a seizure. Now, once there is a seizure, then we can inquire to whether it's unreasonable or not. But, you, but those are two distinct questions, and, and we've been discussing the mere existence of a seizure. Now, true in this case, it was already conceded, but you're asking us to adopt a rule for future cases, and we can't adopt a rule for future cases until we know what we're talking about when, 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 when we talk about a seizure. Um, he was not trying to help you. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm aware of that. But, uh, the, you know, there that, again, is perhaps a good reason why this Court should not reach the merits of the Fourth Amendment question, because in this particular case, it was conceded that there was a seizure so early in the, in the case that the normal development of facts, which, as Justice Scalia, you've pointed out, whether or not there is a seizure is certainly dependent on the individual facts of the encounter between the individual child and the individual police officer. So you're, Those you're, facts were not developed. So and that's your, your argument, again, that we shouldn't reach the merits. That's correct. Now, do you agree that if we vacate the Court of Appeals' decision on the merits, that if Camreta did exactly what he did in this case again, that he would not face personal liability? If you, if you vacate the decision on the merits, right. Um, then that cannot be used that cannot be used to establish that there's clearly established law and in the absence of clearly established law he cannot be found personally liable that that would be correct so that if he did exactly the same thing he would still be entitled to qualified immunity he would still be entitled to qualified immunity but if this court were to vacate this court would uh, be effectively telling lower courts that they should not follow the Pearson sequence ever because if they, if the lower court reaches a constitutional issue and then rules that the defendant has qualified immunity, which 
Pearson said that they could do, um, that this Court would then say, no, uh, well, don't not always, not always, only when there's no longer a case or controversy. In, in many cases, there will still be a case or controversy. Well, it, it'll, it'll be something that could be replicated again in the future for some other reason. It, it, it isn't true that it will just uh, eliminate the whole purpose of our, of our jurisprudence in this area. In, in many cases, the, uh, the decision below can be appealed, and, and, and we will rule on the, on the constitutional question. Uh, which is uh, — that's But you moved away. I mean, if, you know, uh, it's a different situation. It's, it's a different situation, but uh, if they're in the situations where individual defendants have qualified immunity, uh, it, it has been the uh, procedure in this Court, not only since Pearson, but really going all the way back to Siegert v. Gilly in 1991, where the Court recommended that the lower courts reach the constitutional issue of uh, or in, in Seagirt, they, the, this Court said that they can. In County of Sacramento v. Lewis, this Court said that they, it's the better approach. Well, you could have cross-petitioned uh, in an effort to get damages. If you, so if you had wanted to preserve the issue, you surely could have done that, couldn't you? Uh, SG could have cross-petitioned, but she decided not to. But then but they I, would have. There's nothing in the record to indicate that you're withdrawing your Manel uh, action against the, the uh, municipality, is there? The, the Manel action against the municipality was dismissed on, on the But isn't, it, isn't the motion to reinstate it still pending in the district court? The motion to reinstate it was denied without prejudice to reinstate after this court rules and uh, the, All right, so the, it's still alive. For it's that, still and, alive. And, and there's nothing in the record to indicate that you won't ask that it be reinstated. That's correct. But so is what that against a different party, Ms. Kubitschek? That is against Deschutes County, Justice Kagan. But who's, who's on the other side of the county? I'm sorry, who's on the other side? The, of the, the claim, claim pending below involves which two parties? Oh, it, it, it involves SG oh. and the county. So and I'm that sorry, is, the claim that is alive, the claim that is alive involves uh, different incidents, incidents that took place in March uh, of 2003. Does the decision on the merits here have any relevance whatever to the action that's still pending? No. So you, you agree that if, if this is vacate, if we vacate the decision on the merits, that's of no meaning whatever in the pending action below? It, it would not have an effect on the action. So suppose that we uh, dismiss the case as improvidently granted while indicating in an opinion some of the questions that we find difficult, such, for example, as the seizure question, etc. What kind of uh, impact would that have, in your opinion? If the court were to dismiss the yes. case as Im the writ, while indicating the reasons being, in part, that there are difficult questions here, suggesting what they are, what what would the impact would that have? Well, Your Honor, uh, we'd hope it would have some impact, at least, on the petitioner's position. The petitioner's position, as stated in their brief, that all seizures of children to investigate child abuse are constitutional at their inception, meaning there, there are no limits, there are no constraints on it what a child abuse It wouldn't affect your client in any way because she's out of it, and you were candid from the beginning to say, as far as she's concerned, this is a moot case. But as far as Camretta and the other offices our concern. Um, we were told by um, Oregon's representative that they are not um, that they have tailored their behavior to conform to this decision. So, and, uh, and your honor, uh, that so that would be to to tell the. Um, Officials who investigate child abuse that, in the name of protecting children, they do not have free reign to do anything and everything that they think is appropriate because what they do harms children, including the very children they claim to be trying to protect. Um, as Justice Breyer said, even raising those questions would, would be beneficial to children who are forced to undergo 
child abuse investigations, 75 percent of whom have not been abused at all and who find the experience uh, psychologically traumatic. If you're making an argument on something that you've already told us you have no cognizable legal interest in, correct? Correct. If you were designing what you would regard as an ideal system, and you're very knowledgeable in this in this area, and you concluded that some kind of uh, approval by a detached uh, individual should be required before something like this is allowed, would you set the standard at probable cause? Would you say that the Child Protective Service has to have probable cause that there's abuse before they can question the child to find out whether there was abuse, or would you set it at some lower level? Well, in fact, Your Honor, uh, the most of the states have a procedure for seeking court approval, and they differ in, in whether they require probable cause or reasonable suspicion or uh, something like reasonable cause. And so while we put in our brief that the seizure of uh, SG should have been based upon probable cause, given the law enforcement component, uh, if there was if, Kem- if Alfred, the deputy sheriff, were not there at all and uh, it was purely a child welfare seizure and the child welfare caseworker were going to a juvenile court judge and seeking some kind of judicial approval, uh, the, because the laws of the states differ between reasonable suspicion and probable cause, um, I would suggest that it, it, the better course would be to let this play itself out between those two legal standards. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Uh, General Proger, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. General, um, just a point of clarification before you go on. You said earlier that your office had advised the county not to seize children. Does that mean they're not talking to children at all? Is it, you use the word seized. Are you advising them that they don't have the right to talk to children uh, without their parental consent or warrant? Uh, n- no, Your Honor, but they would have to talk to children in a way which runs no risk of being found of seizing the children within the meaning of the Ninth Circuit. Talk to them walking along the hall in the school, right? Just come up alongside. By the way, I wanted to ask you whether your father has been Yes, Your Honor, and you can see the problem which the Ninth Circuit decision causes practically on the child welfare system of the state of Oregon. The, the, Mr. Camretta and other child protective services workers under the Ninth Circuit decision face an enormous burden. In most of these cases, it is impossible to establish probable cause to get a warrant without first speaking to the child because the child is usually the only witness that is available to the government. And so to require, as the Ninth Circuit has here, that we obtain a warrant prior to even speaking to a child victim. Uh, place What's the standard? I mean, I, I just assume you're not suggesting that um, this procedure could be used with every child in every school without some ground for suspicion, correct? No, Your Honor. We believe that reasonable suspicion is the, is the proper basis before making a seizure of a child to conduct one of these inquiries. Significant here in Griffin, and subsequent cases like Lidster, the Court has recognized that the relationship between the State and the person being searched or seized is significant to the reasonableness analysis. And here it is not an adversarial relationship. The child and the State share a significant interest in making sure that that child is safe. And were the government to be continued to be put in the position of not being able to speak to a child until probable cause has developed in some other way, uh, children will continue to be, be placed at risk. But, General, I I take it that that problem disappears. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, If we find there's no jurisdiction, if we months and wear this case, the decision is wiped off the books, you return to status quo ante, and you tell all your people that they can do what they would have done beforehand. Is that right? That is correct, Your Honor. That would be a a significant step forward for Mr. Camretta and others similarly placed. The, The challenge is that those kind of claims, then, would be perpetually um, subject to, to uh, qualified immunity because the law would not be clarified. Would that, you, are you, I, and then I guess what I'm asking is, let's assume we go ex ante. 
At any moment that an agency speaks to a child, they can move from a non-seizure to a seizure, correct? And some seizures can be reasonable and some can't, right? That's correct, Your Honor. And law enforcement is never going to know where that line of reasonableness or unreasonableness is. Is that correct? That's, that's, in, that's in the nature of doing this without a warrant, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. That's part of the reason we agreed that a seizure was committed here, so that law enforcement are not placed in a difficult position every time they speak to a child of trying to make their own determination. But they what do it anyway. Meaning, even if we say that they can seize the child, you would still have to not do a seizure that was unreasonable. You wouldn't in scope. They can't speak to the child endlessly, can they? No, Your Honor, that's correct, that the, the government officials will have to conduct that, that seizure in a reasonable manner for a reasonable duration. That's different, I think, though, Your Honor, than the threshold question, of if they start to talk to a child, of trying to judge in the middle of an interview, have we gone too far, has a seizure occurred? I'm not quite sure why you stipulated to a seizure in this case, but that was your strategic choice. Mr. Chief Justice, the question is whether vacating the decision will have an impact on the litigation below, and it will. The respondent is seeking to preserve the, the Ninth Circuit decision precisely to aid the Fourth Amendment claim that the uh, respondent is making against Deschutes County. And thus, this is somewhat analogous to the situation in the Pacific Bell case, where you have a petitioner and respondent seeking different remedies uh, from this Court in light of the impact that it will have on subsequent litigation. Ms. Kubitschek said it was based on different events. Is that right or not? The, the Fourth Amendment claim against the county is based on, on this uh, interview? Your Honor, I have not seen the new complaint, but my understanding is that it is the same event and same claim. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.